Hello, hello, friends and gamers. Welcome to today's episode where we had the privilege of hosting a true veteran in the world of journalism and content creation, Hal Crawford. Hal has worn many hats throughout his illustrious career, from being a news executive to showcasing his expertise across various mediums like print, digital, audio, and TV. And for our gaming enthusiasts, you'll be intrigued to know that Hal once delved into the world of game reviews a while back. With such a diverse and rich background, we're in for such an insightful conversation. Hal is currently the head of content at Palamos. Palamos is dedicated to blockchain gaming. It's an information and education provider, game asset lending, and staking service, as well as a community. They believe in the massive potential of blockchain games and want to welcome as many people as possible into that world. They cover a variety of things such as press releases, team overviews, editorials, uh, they even have a scholarship page, you know. I really found out about them because I had seen the content creation they were making, and I was really intrigued by it. I felt it was one of the only Web3 gaming news platforms out there that felt consistent. I thought of it as the IGN of Web3, and I felt they were really early and really ahead for the time. And so I reached out to Hal because I saw he was working on the content team. I actually did not know he was head of content at the time. And I really just wanted to have him on to talk about Palamos and talk about his experience and uh, did not realize what a robust background Hal had. So after talking to him more, I said, you know what, we really just need to talk about what you've done and what you're doing because Hal had such valuable insight and expertise and experience with journalism, period. He's one of the few guests I've had who, of his own volition, like a true journalist, was willing to bring up critiques of the Web3 gaming industry. And we need more of that. And I'm fine with talking about all the great positive benefits, but I think there's a duty to share to people who are invested and interested in this ecosystem to understand where there may be shortfalls, shortcomings, you know, things of that nature. So I really appreciated how bringing that up and talking about that with me. Once again, like every episode, I feel so lucky and so blessed I get to talk to so many amazing people who know so much more and are so much smarter than me and get to share their story. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for being on the podcast, Hal. My name is Matthew, and I'm the Web3 Gamer. Ever felt like unleashing your inner Greek god during a heated board game night? Introducing Palamos Peaceful Parlor Games. That's right, inspired by Palamos, the ancient Greek god of war and battle, we've taken his fierce energy and channeled it into war games. Because why wage an actual war when you can dominate in a game of battles and ladders? Each game comes with a tiny toga for that authentic Greek god feel, and for those intense game nights, we've included a mini Palamos panic button. Press it, and it shouts motivational ancient war cries, mostly just for Sparta. But it's the thought that counts. Order now and get a free olive wreath headband because nothing says I'm the god of board games like a leafy crown. Channel your inner Palamos without the actual warfare. Only at Palamos Peaceful Parlor Games. Well, hello, hello, friends and gamers. I'm Matthew Simone. I am the Web3 Gamer, and I am here with Hal Crawford. Hal is, has a multitude of experience in journalism spanning over 25 years. Hal is currently working in Web3 gaming journalism with Palamos, and it's a pleasure to have him here. Hal, how's it going? Hey, Matthew. It's great to be here. Tuning in all the way from, well, I guess right now, no, it's it's sunny Australia, right? I it's, know our seasons are reversed. When it's summer here, it's winter there and vice versa. 
Yeah, it's getting sunnier. It's getting hotter. I still got a jumper on, and as I call it, a sweater on down here. Uh, it, but that's because I'm kind of in my cave, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of cool here all year round. But yeah, it gets pretty hot here, and it, it's heating up. Yeah, well, we're coming into we're coming out of our hot, hot summer down here in Southeast US, and going into a very hopefully nice and cool temperate winter. But again, pleasure to have you here. Honestly, maybe you just want to give us a quick rundown of what's your history been even before you got into a web3 gaming journalism just how did you even get into journalism in the first place mm. yeah well uh it's it's feels like it's uh, another world and it, and it was another world it was a whole nother uh, millennium um i got in uh 95 i started at a newspaper on the west coast of australia um in a place called perth Starting for a print newspaper as a cadet journalist, and that meant uh, like a cub reporter just going around um, doing things that I wouldn't have otherwise done, like uh, police reporting and real estate reporting and sport reporting. Uh, and that was for me a really necessary step because I think I was one of those people who wouldn't have sort of naturally um, burst through my bubble and 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 spoken to people. So for me, that was. I was more scared of the chief of staff than I was of speaking to people. And that forced me out into the world. And for me, that was a very good thing. Um, so that was the the 90s I worked there. And then um, I went digital very early, always been interested in computers, always had computers and technology, always interested in games. And um, late in the 90s, I became a, a, a games reviewer and a sort of a technology reviewer. Uh, working on my own as I do now. Uh, and um, that sort of precipitated my turn to digital uh, journalism very early um, by those standards. I sort of started working uh, in 2001 in the Netherlands in um, in digital only. And I, I don't know if you'll um, understand this, Matthew, but it, in 2001 I thought I was late to the party <laughs> because... <laughs> Because, you know, it seemed to me that, you know, all of this, I didn't know enough about the web. I didn't know, you know, how to code um, pages. Um, and uh, I was struggling to come to terms with all this, um, the, the combination of content and tech. Um, but anyway, I did that in the early 2000s in the Netherlands, um, surprisingly. And then uh, I've moved back. I've, I've worked in several countries um, I've worked in radio and TV as well as sort of digital only publishers and, um, and you know, a, a little bit of print. So I've, I've seen quite a few mediums. Um, and my, my primary love is the written word. Um, but of late, that's sort of moderated into um, really getting into voice and um, podcasts and, and, the, and the spoken word. Um, and even later into video. So, um, yeah, I've, it's, it's been a career that's um, spanned a lot of different media and I continue to learn a huge amount. Well, and I'm sure that's changed the way you probably, like when you think about how you probably used to tell a story early in your career versus how you tell it now, or maybe how you prefer to tell it now, rather. Um, I'm, I'm sure, do you feel you have a different perspective for storytelling in digital versus like print media or do you feel like that kind of carries over the same way no it, i don't think it does um i think the fundamentals are there uh you know if you go very deep 
but the form changes and the form has evolved over say say i've been in media for well well over 25 years the form that you follow in telling the story changes and to me that's been absolutely fascinating and also quite confronting because you have to confront your own assumptions like i don't know about you matthew but um when i write i don't write like i speak and that becomes very noticeable when you have to do like what you do for this show. You write an introduction. Now, if you write an introduction the way that you uh, write and then you speak it, you will sound boring and pompous and not real. Um, and so, when you write to be, when you make a script, um, it's it's a very different writing style than if you're um, writing to be read. And um, you know, of late. Um, the idea of improvising um, is getting more and more attractive to me and more and more important for the work that I'm doing on YouTube. Um, you know, YouTube is so much about authenticity. I mean, it's it's deeply fake because it's about authenticity, but you're <laughs> but you're planning it ahead of time mostly, and you, you're being performative. So it's not 100% real, but you have to adopt a cons- a con- con- conversational tone. Um, and you have to actually reach through the lens and and reach through the the mic and actually speak to people, and that is um, something that no one teaches you how to do in media. You just have to sort of realize that that's what you need to do. No, that's totally fair. Um, my brother has a degree in journalism, but it's all been from the print side of things. And so he, once he experienced that, like he was like on the paper in college, like, you know, he was doing all that and he was like, I don't want to go do that in the real world. So he went to digital and kind of did his own thing freelance for the longest time. And then he's kind of pivoted that to almost like content creation now where um, people are just like, look, I, I don't know how to make these ideas appealing. Like I'm going to make them too, like too boxed in, too straightforward. And so he's the medium between that. And it's been fascinating to see that evolve, especially because he's, he's also involved in a lot of, um, blockchain web three stuff. And uh, I, you know, I think a lot of people try to undervalue the creativity that journalism's journalists bring to the table. um, Because they're like, well, and it's so funny that people like anybody can write and you're like, really, then how come most people still write like they're in like fifth grade, like, you know, like, I I would disagree and say it is a very, very hardy skill that takes many, many years to develop and fully flesh out. My problem funny what you were saying is, I write too much like I talk to the point that my writing is incredibly, incredibly informal. And if I need to write something formal, it's me having to button up my shirt to the top button and sound very hoity-toity, you know? So I I think there's a delicate balance of finding, like you said, understanding the tone you want to set, um, set and setting for your tone for especially any of your works. Yeah, well, I think that, yeah, that's fascinating that you're quite different from me in that respect. The... I, I suppose I learned to write from reading reading and just reading lots of books and reading lots of novels and um when I was younger and you know if you if you're reading books, they have all sub clauses and fancy words and um it's um it's a very different style really than than how we speak and you know you notice that if you look at a transcript you know people trail off they do what i'm doing they have little diversions they don't finish their sentences 
And you don't start when you're speaking to a person, if you're trying to get them to understand what you're saying, you don't start your sentence with this massive diversion and then go on to something else and have a have sub clauses in the middle of, of your sentence um, because people can't follow what you're saying. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's every medium and every platform, you have to shape what you're doing. Um, that's certainly been a discovery. It is, it is the, the, the platform and the medium uh, shapes the way that you do the content. Every time that I've been involved in a organization where people think, Oh, we'll just take TV and we'll, put it on YouTube or we'll put it, uh, we'll serve it. We'll, we'll cut up TV news and we'll serve it as video. That doesn't work. That um, is, is really hopeless. And um, that, that situation of trying to take something made for one uh, medium and trying to apply it to another, that is again and again, that's what happens. So if you try and take a game review that you've written and put that on YouTube, that won't work either. Um, so you just have to really focus. You have to know which um, platforms you care about and which mediums you care about. You can't be good um, on everything and you don't probably want to be good on everything because that's not you're not going to have a unified audience. So, um, yeah, focus is really important. Definitely. I, I could definitely understand exactly where you're coming from with that. And so... You know, you you talked about that earlier in your career. You did do some gaming journalism, it sounds like, for a bit, and then you kind of strayed away from it, but you've kind of come full circle in that sense of, you know, you were a games reviewer earlier in your career. How did this experience influence your decision to delve back into the gaming world with Palamos? Yeah. Well, I think it made me comfortable to do so. Um, you know, I've, I'm just... I'm just the sort of person who like always got on with the developers at work who um, was never afraid of programming, was um, always loved computer games and felt an affinity to the people who love them. Um, so I, it was always going to be my natural environment. Like I love geeks. Um, I love people who uh, are unashamed to show their enthusiasm for, for uh, geeky things. And I just love the fact that, you know, our culture has effectively been geekified and it's been one where back in the 90s, if you played computer games, basically you didn't tell anyone that you played computer games. Now playing computer games is is a mainstream activity and all of the people that I talk to, it's just like, yeah, great, let's get into it. Let's, let's embrace this. Um, so... I wasn't afraid. The The reason that I moved away from computer games really was because, you know, life intervened and I had a family and there was a period from the, say, the 2000s, uh, late 2000s to, to now effectively where I was too busy or otherwise engaged to put hundreds of games into hours, uh, sorry, hundreds of hours into games. Um, so... But yeah, I mean that sort of stayed with me. The 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 games reviewing, um, games reviewing is an interesting thing. Have you ever been a games reviewer, Matthew? I have not. You know, I tried to get into it very very early on. I mean, gosh, when IGN was still like forum based, like back in the yeah. early probably two thousand five two thousand six era. Um, and I think I just submitted some posts or some guides, and that was as far as I got. But no, I know nothing of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, it's it's a really interesting gig because your love um, becomes uh, abased by the fact that it becomes your work, and it is 
uh, it's like uh, people would ship. This was back in the day where people you had to ship games on um, uh, CD-ROM, and so I would just get hundreds of these um, games shipped to my apartment. And I was also reviewing equipment, so I'd get printers and scanners and all sorts of computers and things arriving in boxes. And after a while, it just gets really depressing because, you know, this thing that you've associated with fun and like Christmas, um, it just, it, yeah, it's, it's horrible. Um, so, and, and you can't choose which games that you open up and play. You have to play all of them. Um, and to, I always felt really a strong, strong sense of obligation to the developers to actually play the games and try and play them properly. Um, and that is a, that's a big commitment if you're reviewing several games every week. So, um, so it's actually games reviewing is actually really tough in my opinion. Um, but I had that experience in that background. And so it's been absolutely fascinating to come back into the world. Um, and I was, I was sort of kept a line out. Like I, um, always, uh, played, um, Counter-Strike. Uh, I was never very good or anything, but um, so Counter-Strike, I would always occasionally just have a game of Counter-Strike. Um, so now I get back into it and I'm firing up these games um, like Starfield, which I've just, you know, I've got a Microsoft Game Pass and um, just, you know, these games are blowing me away because they're just so cool. They're just deep and rich and, yes, uh, there's a lot of things that I would like that game developers would sort of um embrace you know and as you get older you're like maybe i could stop killing thousands of things now um you know but there are plenty of games out there that are non-violent um i just played a really amazing one called chance of senna or chance of senna however you say chance um and that's a sort of a linguistic game Look, games are just incredible, and I think stepping out and then stepping back into it, it just your eyes are fresh, and you see the graphics, and you see that people are playing these games for hundreds of hours. Um, and it, it, to me, it's a it's a wonderful world. Yeah, and I think for the longest time there with gaming, um, especially you know, I can only go as far back as the. Nintendo Entertainment System in the mid '80s, where again you're, you know, the any any text or there's no voice acting; it's all text based. It's almost like reading a book. Where I think a lot of times when people see a book turn into a show or a movie, if they have a real affinity for that, they're actually disappointed. And you're like, well, you have to think if two people are reading the same book next to each other, you have a different tone, voice, picture for that character, that scene than somebody else. So, and it's it's the beauty of human imagination. But I think for a lot of people. For the longest time, um, it was you got to craft it kind of uniquely to your imagination style. And then as these games have gotten greater graphics, as you said, more directorial in terms of uh, approach. I mean, some of these games literally have the, the budget of a movie. They've got motion capture. They've got insane sound capture. We have directing art style from different angles, close-ups, things of that nature. It really brings people in to be like, oh, it's, it's like a full show. It's like a full movie. It's a full, unique experience. That sometimes at the end of it, people are like, oh, yeah, I played a game, but there were times where I just sat there, had I dropped the controller, and I'm sitting there for five, ten minutes completely absorbed because I'm so into the storyline, the characters, what's going on. Whereas not to say you couldn't do that in a text-based game, but I think it's a it's a vast evolution from what it, uh, what it used to be, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And uh, 
there, there, there's a purity to some old games, um, not all old games, but uh, a lot, um, where the mechanics of the game and the structure of, of the movement is really refined. Um, you know, some of those old platformers and um, there's a depth to playing those that you only get because the graphics were so poor that they had to be, you know, you, you had to focus on what you could do in the game rather than what it looked like. Um, sometimes in modern games that's missing. Like if you actually sort of um, analyse the degrees of freedom available to the player, sometimes there's not that many, you know, you know, perhaps you're just racing around a dungeon slashing stuff to pieces and that's the same interaction that you have with 50 monsters in a row. Um, but, um, you know, the best the best modern games are, are, are going to include the degrees of freedom of movement with, with amazing graphics. And then suddenly you've got the, these worlds that are, um, you know, very engrossing. Um, and I assume, and I think we'll see the, the use of AI in games that, you know, renders NPCs even more convincing. And um, it's still, it's still quite comforting to me that, games uh, you you can in no way mistake a game for the real world um there will be a time when when we can confuse a game for the real world and um i'm just sort of glad i mean that's coming that's cool that'll be amazing i'm sort of glad it's not here yet i could agree with that i like having them separate (laughs) as as is um i like having my fantasy and my reality but so with um, since Palemos does a lot of um, Web three gaming focus, so I guess when was your first introduction to like Web three, and what intrigued you about the convergence of blockchain technology and gaming? Yeah, well, this is an in- really, as you know, Matthew, it's 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 just such a mind blowing world when you first get into it. Uh, my introduction to crypto was a, a long time ago. I had a mate, um, Dave who was a really early crypto miner and he told me all about it. And, you know, back in the early days, it was quite easy to mine um, Bitcoin um, on your own home computer and he was doing that. Um, he sold early though, much to his uh, disappointment now. Uh, so I knew about crypto. I didn't know much about it, didn't hold any myself. Um, not until the beginning of 2022, so very recently, did I find out about um, blockchain gaming? And it was through um, the co-CEO of Polymos, Richard McLaren, who is a friend and colleague. I'd worked with him at 9MSN, which is a big um, digital uh, portal in, in Australia. I'd worked with him for many years. He told me about Polymos and I was like, well, I don't, I don't get it. Um, so he just sort of stepped me through. He took an hour, maybe two hours to step me through Axie Infinity, which I'd never heard of. Um, and he's like, oh, and I'm, I'm like a lot of people who are tech inclined, I got it immediately in terms of, oh, okay. So I already understand the concept of an NFT, uh, sort of a uh, unique digital entity um, on a, effectively on a distributed database. Um this uh, this technology will allow gamers to have true ownership of assets in games that that you know that they can't be disenfranchised from, and it will allow econo- game economies to expand beyond games themselves. 
and for people to trade game items like real items. Um, and that effectively will jumpstart this whole thing. There are, of course, a lot of other applications of blockchain technology in games aside from just um, assets. Um, but I think that's the easiest to understand. Um, there's, I think there's a lot of pitfalls also in Web3 gaming and a lot of pitfalls that I've seen developers um, go into and probably they're not coming out of those. Uh, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> well, so then with, with being in that like landscape now, how do, you, how do you decide which stories are worth exploring and reporting on? Or is it you kind of just get to pick whatever tickles your fancy? You know, if something peruses your interest you get to choose to report on it versus you know maybe like the old days something getting handed from the top going here's what you're reporting on whether you're interested in it or not yeah yeah there's a lot of um great learning um when someone gives you a story about something that you've got absolutely no interest in and you have to uh, manufacture some curiosity about it uh i love i actually love that because what in my experience anything can become interesting um i don't know Matthew, you strike me as a curious person and, you know, you've started this thing. I love anyone who started something um, for themselves and on their own um, initiative. And um, with Web, Web3, obviously I love games. Um, I already love technology. It's a very natural thing for me to be curious, uh, curious about. Um, in terms of what to decide to cover. I am, I'm head of content at Polymos, so I get to call the shots. Um, I've been that, I've been in that position for some time actually, because, you know, I was a news director, I was in charge of TV newsrooms. Before that, I was a, um, a publisher and whatever, editor in chief. Um, so I've, I've been used to bossing people around for some time. Um, now I've got a very small team um, and uh, I, I sort of work for myself effectively. Uh, I'm still a consultant um, and I, I do get to choose what I want to choose. But the things that attract my interest are, let's put it this way, I don't like the boosterism that I see in Web3 journalism. I don't like the fact that um, I see a lot of people acting like the marketing department. Um, I'm naturally inclined to, to go to, to the dodgier aspects because I'm like, oh, well, okay, this needs some attention. Um, so I love anyone who's on the cutting edge, anyone who's, I think is doing a really great job. Um, and then I'm quite, um, I'm into the people who are doing a really bad job as well. <laughs> because <laughs> It's just, you know, I just, you know, uh, an accident, a shamozzle, a chaos, uh, that's that's an interesting thing to tell people about as well. Well, sure. And I would say um, just, just being into video games for as long as I have and seeing video game journalism go from you can only get things in a magazine, you know, maybe weeks after something developed as now on social media within minutes of something happening, hours, less hours, minutes, something happening, Somebody, it's it's a race who's going to publish the first story, whether it's going to be, you know, some tea or some drama going on, um, somebody massive getting fired, a game getting canceled, getting delayed. It's just the, the news spreads so fast for that stuff now. And it's crazy to see uh, because I just, 
it's like if you it's it's interesting because obviously game informer is still a magazine you get it and if you get it now i'm sure you're like oh by the time i get this this is all like weeks old information and news compared to what i could probably read online i've probably read all about this or seen it but what i like is that in some of those print media they still have unique interviews with developers or um creators that they may not publish out there in the world until after you know the print media has been you know created and you know uh syndicated all that jazz you know so i do think it's interesting to see that and i will to go back to what you're saying earlier about how you felt a duty to the developers i also feel that way where if i'm playing a game and i'm into it and i go man i'm just really not feeling this i'm not really enjoying it i'm like wow i gotta play it through to the end because somebody really put their heart and soul in this and i just i feel like i'm doing it too much of a disservice and i think the worst thing that happens is i get to the end and i go had some high points had some low points i probably won't play it again but I've rarely played some games where I got to the end. I was like, man, that was a that was a big waste of time. It felt like uh, yeah. usually I get to the end and I feel like I had some form of fun or I get to the end and you go, crap, I didn't want that to end. I was just ready for mm-hmm. it to keep on going because that's how absorbed or into it I was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's wonderful. I mean, it, life is really important to 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 get the things that you admire and to find the good things in everything that you do. Um, that's that's wonderful. I certainly when i was younger and i was reviewing games i was much more inclined to be harsh um than i than i am now because you know you just think you know it all and you're like oh these guys are useless now i actually interview a lot of game developers and i see how hard it is to make a game and i'm like well i i would have no chance of making a game myself um you have to work for years you're not exactly working in isolation usually you've got a team but you are the old style of game development was very much do it all in a black box and then release it and just have your fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. Um, now that we, one of the most important developments in web three is really this open um, style of game development where you're interacting with your community as you're building the game. I think there are some big drawbacks um, and we're going to see those drawbacks of, over time. Um but there are also some huge advantages. You're not going to get surprised by anything as a developer. Um, and uh, that's that's one of the really big innovations of, of Web3 game development is this kind of getting dressed in public thing that they do. <laughs> no, you're totally right. And, and I think you're right that it can be a detriment because sometimes, whereas in traditional gaming, it's uh, you release, you know, black box, you release it. If people are unhappy about stuff, you go, well, we'll keep that in mind if there's a sequel or this is the third iteration, yeah. the fourth iteration, we'll take those improvements to heart. Whereas yeah. I think with web three gaming, there can be, um, I think a worry can be a bit of too much people pleasing. You're like, Oh, the community's rallying around this. They're, they're yelling about that. Uh, we need to fix it immediately because if we don't, no one's going to play our game. And then everything we've worked for so hard is going to fall to pieces, which wh- whether that is or is not the case, um, I can see how it can there's got to be a, a good tug and pull where it's like we have our yeah. core, our core idea. That's not going to change. Maybe our core, like the gameplay mechanics we initiated because we find them fun. We're not going to change. Maybe it's something along the line as silly as people go, oh, this feels unbalanced or unfair. Somebody goes, well, I don't like the way that character looks. And them going, well, we're not going to change the way the whole character looks for the game. That doesn't matter versus going, yeah, there's always balancing issues. That's why there's updates, push outs, things of that nature. We'll, we'll figure that out. But glad that I think an open beta does a lot of good for these games. Because yeah. it gives people a chance to go in, play the game, experience it, and give genuine feedback. Go, hey, I really liked this. I was curious why you didn't have this included. And I'm wondering 
is that going to be a thing going forward? And a lot of times the developers would be like, we didn't think about that. That's good. Now we're yeah. going to integrate that yeah. in for the final alpha, you know? Yeah, I think it's really important how the developer approaches it and how the kind of language they use and the things they say to, the, to their community. Uh, if they say to the community, we're building this together and this is your game, um, and there's all this talk about democracy and so forth. Well, I think they're setting themselves up for a big fall um, because, you know, making games is, isn't a democratic exercise and you don't design a game by committee. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, that's a massive problem. So down the line when people have used that language and said that we're building this together, then you're either going to have a shit game or you're going to um, you're going to have to let your community down at one point and just ram something through. So you know there are really important game mechanics um, that shouldn't be decided by committee. Effectively, um, you know we all know that designing by committee, you tend to get a really sort of low and average um, product as the end result. Um, Mark Long from Shrapnel, he once uh, said to me. You know, making games is very much very auteur driven, and meaning it's it's driven by either you know one or two visionaries, um, and and that's what creates a great game. Um, but the you know, so I think if you've got a DAO, um, and if you're seriously thinking about letting the DAO have some influence on your game mechanic decisions, I think that's a, a mistake. Um, and effectively, what I see in a lot of games who do have strong DAOs is that there's just this cross um, cross current of tension and conflict that is flowing through the whole situation. Because in reality, game developers and designers cannot let um, such important decisions go to committees. Sure. No, I, I can. I can totally get behind where you're coming from on that because I have definitely seen that with quite a few projects where um, you almost get to this weird, you're getting pulled in so many directions, um, you almost get like decision paralysis. You're like, what thing should we focus on? What should we worry about? Because we have five different, because we, you know, maybe we've made seven factions. Two of the factions are happy with the way things go and the other five all want totally different things from one another. And we don't know which one to address because maybe one is puts us at odds with another or, and also, too, it's kind of one of the things like, you know, unfortunately, there's assholes everywhere, no matter where you go. Um, your best bet is to just tune them out and focus on your own thing. But I think there's a lot of people who have no experience developing a game, just play or just people who are genuine trolls who just go into something. And it doesn't matter what you do, how you create it. They're just going to have something to whine and complain about. And that's and they're going to and if now they have an actual influence to be heard and change it, they're going to. They're gonna they're gonna voice that concern even louder, and so sometimes I think it's people who are complaining, kind of don't genuinely have a place to complain because they don't have the experience or the know how. And again, I always think about that with developers. I mean, one of the things I always hear from developers is they're like, "Man, you have no idea. I wish." Like they're like, hey, "It must be so amazing to develop one of like if I'm talking about like I love the Dark Souls games, so like I'm always like, it must be so amazing to develop those games." But then I've heard in so many interviews they're like. We never play any of these games because you have a totally different experience than we do. You get to go in fresh. You get to go in raw. You get to experience everything. We've built it from the ground up. We know every nook and cranny and everything that's going to occur. It's it's a completely different experience for us. We never get to... They're like, we're honestly jealous you get to have that such an amazing experience because we will never have that experience as the creators. And so that's something I think about too a lot with people who 
voice their concern, I'm like, well, you have a totally different mindset and approach than the, the developers and the creators because you're all about you're all about enjoying the experience. You're all about it not, you're not trying to integrate, make it good gameplay, make it uh, understandable, ease of use. There's so many things, especially. I mean, I had somebody on who talked about in-game economies, and he was he has a legit degree in economics, and I was like, I'm not even going to pretend I've understood half of what you're talking about because you're legitimately making an economy in a game. Like it's not just somebody being like, ah, we'll just balance some things out, like five gold for this, ten gold for that. It's there's a lot of depth and research that goes into every aspect all the lay- levels and layers of a game that I, if somebody asked my opinion i'd be like i'm the wrong person to ask i'm looking at it from a user and player perspective i'm going to probably give you the wrong advice and wrong direction yeah yeah then that's exactly it it's game playing is different from making uh and you, you know that from every other thing that you've ever done in your life like you know uh, reading a book is different from writing a book uh, making a video is very different from consuming a video the, the problem with uh, having consumed, so, so let's just talk about movies. You know, the problem is that having watched like thousands of movies in my life, I think that I know everything about them, but I actually know nothing about how to make a movie. Um, so, you know, that's, you get to that when you actually get to it, when you actually start trying to make something. Another curious thing, um, Matthew, that you will have noticed in this um, in this industry is the number of developers who are building a game for the first time, and um, that is part of the reason. Like we've got this real problem with deadlines in in Web three gaming. So there was a a, a rash of optimism. Uh, a lot of these games started development, um, you know, in twenty twenty or even twenty one, and there was a lot of crazy roadmap making going on and people said that they would deliver games within a year or within two years and that's ridiculous you know games take three to five years really any kind of decent game is going to take you three years to make um the more complicated one's going to take you five years to make um and even longer so you know that those expectations were completely um silly and there were a lot of people making games who didn't have experience making games um if you observe the people who've made games before, they are the ones who are hitting their um, hitting their their roadmaps and um, actually delivering, and they just feel a lot more solid. Um, but everyone has to start somewhere, right? So to me, I think it's wonderful. I think there's like this rash of people who've been funded to be in this industry. Um, they are going to make their first games and they might be all right or they might be crap, but they will then, those people, those games might fail, but the people continue and then they're going to go on and there's going to be this rash of expertise in these kind of complicated games with game economies that you're talking about. In um, in the next decades, we're just going to get some absolutely amazing games because of the funding that we've had through a sort of, non-traditional game funding um, avenues and injected into this industry that is going to be reflected in, in, you know, releases in 10 years time. They're going to be amazing. Um, In the meantime, we've had a whole lot of disappointments and we're going to continue to have some disappointments. Yeah. And I, I think too, that, the games that I'm really interested in and have been paying attention to going forward is their whole... Uh, it's it's interesting. I'm sure you've noticed this. There's a lot of these game studios in Web3 Gaming kind of taking a hybrid approach where they're like, 
our first and foremost thing is we're developing a game. We want it to be fun to play. We want it to be engaging. We're trying to make a great game. You can just go play that game by itself. We're trying to publish it on Steam, Epic Games Store, wherever, a console, hopefully, eventually. But most of them are strictly PC now. Then they also have this extra layer of all the NFT integration, Web3 integration, wallet. You know, maybe they have a token, things of that nature. And they go, this is all just gravy on top. If you're into that stuff and you want to integrate it, like we're fully developing this too. But if you don't care about any of that and you just want to play the game, hey, no worries. We, we got you covered. And so I've seen this interesting approach where I think some of the more successful companies are taking this really weird hybrid approach where they're, they're tapping into both markets. Because right now, they're, they're both very much separate. The traditional gaming market has been so well established and been there so long, it, has, it stands alone on its own no matter what. But people who want to tap into that, and people like to believe that the Web3 gaming market is like going to merge and meld at some point eventually. And I just, I don't see it happening anytime soon, let alone at all. I think they're very much going to be too parallel. I think the traditional market may take some influences web through gaming, but I don't, I don't know if I ever see it fully being integrated. Like on my console, I'm going to be able to connect my crypto wallet and spend crypto. It's totally possible it could happen. It just seems like they're such two distinct industries now that I don't, I don't see that happening anytime soon. But so again, what I'm getting at is the successful companies or the successful games, I should say, seem to have this really interesting hybrid approach where it's just going to be a fun to play, great game going forward. And that, that's their main bread and butter. That's their main, you know, as, as no different than any other gaming studio. And so yeah. I think that's a really good blueprint to have going forward rather than focusing all on this, you know, a lot of the previous companies you said, like some of the newer ones are, it's all about like, we're going to have 5,000 NFTs, FOMO, buy them before they're gone. That's going to be our like seed money raising, making empty promises going, yeah, we'll have a game in a year. Year comes by, they go, hey, we haven't got the game yet. And people are like, well, I've invested a bunch of money in this. I don't get it. Um, so I think people who, and, and all the ones I've seen that are successful also, it's not their first game they've developed. You know, they've, or they've been at other companies where they've got developed experience, uh, software experience, things of that nature. So I think that's going to be an interesting thing going forward. I'm, I'm, Curious to see if that's going to continue to be the trend. It just seems to be some strong market players are going through that. Yeah. Uh, what you say is absolutely correct from what I've seen, uh, which is um, people who are people who look like they're going to have success or, or enjoying some success are the ones who are taking a gamer first approach to, to their games. Um and and they're integrating the blockchain as an opportunity, as a feature to make the game richer, uh, which I think, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that that is a that is a good possibility. At the moment, uh, the UI of blockchain integrations is pretty rubbish. Um, so, you know, for example, um, you download a, a demo and um, you know, it's free to play, but then you have to go and get uh, an NFT to sort of unlock a lot of features of the game. Um, and unlocking the the NFT is is a process where you have to connect your um, crypto wallet. It is usually a difficult process involving multiple clicks and multiple signings. And you really have, if you're a normal person, you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what you're signing. So you're agreeing to trust that people. In, in most cases, I've actually spoken to the people who are making the game, so I know whether I trust them or not, and so I'm cool. But gaming is, a, is, a, is, is an industry of numbers, and you need tens of thousands of people to be able to do this process. Tens of thousands of people are not going to go through those processes. So 
the people who are working on those um, user interfaces with the knowledge that no one is going to be clicking, you know, deciding that they want their MetaMask wallet to connect and then, you know, making sure that the browser is right, connecting it, then importing that uh, NFT into the game, connecting it to your game account. All of these things are friction. Um, in the end, what matters is what happens on that screen, what happens in terms of, you know, when you move your cursor, your your WASD keys, the game itself and how fun it is, is the essential thing. The competition, Matthew, is absolutely intense. You know, um, if you look at how many games are released on Steam every year, it's more than 10,000. Um, if you look at um, the kinds of the kinds of numbers that you can get uh, in the gaming world, yes, you can reach an audience of millions of monthlies. But you know, of those ten thousand games or ten thousand plus, that's only the ones on Steam. Um, just a very small fraction of those people get into above a hundred thousand, um, you know, monthly active users. So if you want to be in that club you are not just competing against other blockchain games. You are competing against every game in the world. And those games are very, very good. Um, you've got to have something and you've got to know something deep about what people want to play. Um, the other thing here is the importance of um, franchises and IP, um, existing IPs. And by IP, I mean intellectual property um intellectual properties like a Harry Potter, like a Star Wars. These IPs absolutely dominate the charts. So if if you're not an IP that's shifted in from movies or books, you're a game that has a long and storied history and you're releasing a sequel. They're the kinds of games that get into the top charts at the moment and they absolutely dominate. So, you know, we're seeing Baldur's Gate 3, we're seeing Diablo 4. These are the mega games. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't get in. It just means that you have to be sensible about your expectations. And if you're in that game, you're thinking 20 years. You're thinking a whole career kind of thing. So if you want to make a Diablo 4, but you're starting with something that no one knows your IP, you've created, say, a fantasy universe, you know, so, say you're doing something like a Star Atlas, right? Um, you don't have IP. All you've got is a very fervent community. Um, if you want to develop that, that's like a that's a 20-year process of getting to the point where you can dominate. So you have to think, well, I'm not going to get um, 5 million monthly active users in the near future or even the medium-term future. That's not going to happen. How can I have a business model where I can make it work with just getting, say, 50,000? You know, because getting 50,000 monthly active over a period, that would be an absolutely major achievement. I would be stoked with that. If that's not giving you enough money to support your business, then your business has a big flaw. Sure. No, I, I, I get exactly that. Um, and that's funny because I, I have heard quite a few studios talk about that with their game where when they're doing seed funding um sometimes the questions would be like so how are you going to be the next Fortnite?" and they're like we're not we're not trying to be that at all like if that's what you're looking for we're not the right people to invest with because 
if exactly that, they're like, look, if we can get 10,000 users monthly, that's going to be amazing. And we'll be stoked. They're like, but you're not, you cannot be like, so how are you going to get to a million monthly players? They're like, we're simply not, it's just not working. It's not happening in this industry yet. And we're, our game isn't trying to be that, you know, we're trying to just find our own little niche community and work from there. And so I feel like it seems like a big role as a, a journalist in Web3 Gaming is kind of like not only providing your like kind of educating and informing the public about this new frontier, but giving your own unique perspective on things so people don't just go, wow, new shiny thing. Um, because I think it's really important that people who really go dive in give their perspective, whether it's positive, negative, hey, good, could be better. Hey, thought it was going to be way better than it was. Um, even though I think that can really, you know, especially when you're a little harsher, it can bring you a lot of unnecessary criticism when really you're just giving your opinions or your thoughts at the end of the day and sharing them with an open forum. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, look that I, I would focus on the positives of reporting in this, in this industry, which is there it is underreported. There's a lot of, um, stuff going on that is absolutely fascinating, both negative and positive. Um, there's not many people uh, like us who are actually involved <laughs> in the industry and reporting on the industry. Uh, the characters are larger than life. The amounts of money are, are big. Um, you know, the, the thing about uh, blockchain gaming uh, is that there's a mismatch between the amount of funding that the industry has had and the size of the audience or the size of the user base. So it, it's had a shitload of funding. Um, so we've had, um, you know, billions put into web three gaming and there is effectively no user base. I mean, yeah, there might be, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. (laughs) Estimates vary, but you know, um, you know, I think there's sort of 15,000 people out there who might be interested in playing blockchain games. Um, and so you've got this massive mismatch. Um, that leads to great stories. There's there's a lot of great talent. There's a lot of great thinkers. That means there's good people to talk to. The challenge for us is that there aren't the, the audience isn't big um, in terms of uh, getting people to actually consume your work. So yeah, there's a there's a group of um, industry people who are fascinated in what we have to say and discover. Um, and effectively, if we're uh, working as forward scouts for investors, then yeah, I would certainly, if you're a smart investor and you're still interested in investing in Web3, which means you're a rare bird at the moment, but um, then I would be paying attention to the stuff that we're doing because we are talking to studios and we're getting to know who are the jokers, who are serious, who's got a chance of shipping their game. Um, I know a lot more now than I did, you know, 18 months ago. I've got a good sense of the people I talk to who I think um, could actually make a game and have got a good chance of making a good game. Um, so that's good. But when you get to talking about scale audiences, they're not there. So um, the solution at Polymos is that what we're doing is we're still doing that um, industry reporting. I'm still fascinated and I love talking to developers. Um, but we are also have branched out into covering sort of um, – cutting edge uh games of any stripe so you know if we're, we're 
have done a lot of reporting on Baldur's Gate 3. We're going to cover, we're covering Starfield. We're going to cover Assassin's Creed Mirage. Um, for me, this is getting back into the heartland of audiences. It's been my tendency. I tend to want to go for scale audiences. Um, so I'm comfortable with that. And our strategy has been, okay, we do that. And then when, you know, Alluvium releases or, um, you know, Shrapnel releases, then we will cover it alongside those games and hopefully that will expose the those bigger audiences to, say, a Shrapnel. Um, and a game like Shrapnel, um, which is a first-person extraction shooter, that's got a really good chance of getting a big audience. So um, that, to me, can work. Um the other thing that we do is that we're not evangelizing. So I personally don't care if you believe in web three or not. I'm just going to tell you what I know about it. It's not like I'm, I'm not like come to the, come to my side, come to my team. No, I don't feel like that. Also, there are just far too many shysters in, in the environment for me to sort of lay it on the table and say, you've got to get into this. This is wonderful because you know, the truth is, that people do get their wallets trained um, and there's a huge amount of um, fraud and deception. Um, what I can say is that I talk to people and um, the people I talk to tend to be the legitimate ones and you can certainly get a sense as you're talking to someone whether or not they're, you know, legit. And if you follow our reporting and the kind of reporting that you do, you will get a sense for the games that are legitimate and the ones that aren't. So that's a nice way of, you know, picking the path and, and having a safe path through this stuff. Um, and, yeah, just to reiterate, we don't evangelize. We don't um, – we're not a marketing arm. <laughs> no, I agree. And I, I know we're right at time, so I really only have one more question for you, which is – what advice would you give the aspiring journalists who are looking to enter the Web3 gaming space and make a meaningful impact through their work? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, uh, actually, you you, uh, you gave me a heads up beforehand that you'd ask this question, Matthew. So I did um, have a chance to work out what my response would be. And I realized that um, I don't really feel comfortable giving advice because it's... Uh, I don't know, you know, maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I would have, I would have loved to give people advice, but at the moment I don't feel like, um, I'm no, I don't say this out of false modesty. I just, I, I just don't not, I do not feel good enough to give advice to people, but I'll tell you what I've observed is that, um, you, anyone can get into reporting, right? Anyone can get into reporting the, the, the technical equipment that you're using, that I'm using, it's not that expensive. Um, anyone can get into it. You just have to have that ability to ask questions and cultivate curiosity. So the really good reporters and journalists that I've observed in my career, um, they're, they're serious people. Like they, they care about things and they take themselves seriously. And that seriousness is sort of access this solidity when you go and interview people and you ask them questions uh, and you ask them with integrity. Um, it is amazing what people will tell you if you just ask them. Um, so what I would, what I would say is that's the kind of person who makes a great reporter. I don't think I'm a great reporter. Um, I'm not, I'm not that deeply serious person who just 
goes at something fearlessly. Um, but that's what I've observed. I think that we need more people like that. I would love there to be more independent operators such as you and I holding um, people to account and unearthing these fascinating stories. So I just encourage people to get into it. Yeah, I would say stay curious, keep learning. It never ends. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Wow. I'm going to have everywhere people can find you on all your socials, various ways, posted on my show notes. Um, Thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate you giving your perspective, giving me your time. Uh, You're welcome back anytime you ever want to be on. Matthew, thanks so much. And and thanks for, for making the show. Well, friends, that's another episode down. If you enjoyed this podcast, we would really appreciate you rating it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you can rate and wherever you listen to and get your podcast. It would mean the world to us and help get this podcast to people who truly are involved in Web3 gaming, blockchain, and cryptocurrency and want to learn more and stay on top of these emerging technologies. If you have any queries, want to reach out about any collaborations or advertisements, as well as want to reach out with any improvements you think we could make on the podcast, please email us at theweb3gamer at proton.me. We would love to hear from you and take every response very seriously. Take care and keep gaming, my friends.